This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Well, thank you all for being here this evening. It's totally an honor to get to be on the stage with you and be in a place of sharing and exploring. Um, super blessed. Dr. Powers and I had the pleasure of meeting last year at Bioneers, which is uh, taking place this weekend as well. And we were um, we were on a panel and giving some of our own perspective about uh, global festival culture and whether that is... Uh, um, a vehicle for transformation or escapism, or perhaps, <laughs> perhaps both, or that and yeah. more. So that was really fun and a nice way to drop in and connect. And we're really happy to have you back. Thank you. Yeah. I feel a little bit like Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Uh huh. Like rivers in the stream, <laughs> islands in the stream. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's who we are. <laughs> so maybe I'll just invite you to say a little bit about who you are and what you're up to in the world. Um, so first of all, thank you, everyone, because uh, I know San Francisco, like New York, there's a million and one things to do every night. So I appreciate you being here. Um, I am a poet, a journalist, and a professor of literature. And I have inherited the counterculture from the stories that my mom would tell me while we were walking uh, to and from the bus stop when I was a child. And at that point, she had to kind of drop out of activism and a counterculture to raise me as a single mom. Mm. But that meant she was overflowing with stories that were very, very fresh. So she would tell me stories about uh, being part of the Young Lords, marching in the streets, or um, hosting rent parties, and people would put the needle on the groove and dance all night or doing LSD and spinning around on the dance floor until all the lights look like comets circling her hands. So I just kind of grew up with a counterculture as kind of like part of my bedtime story. And I think they were the best bedtime stories ever because there was no boogeyman. It was just everyone was dancing. Everyone except was for the, dancing. Yeah. More dancing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. So how has that informed your worldview? Hmm. The man, there was always the man. Like if there was like a villain, it was this abstract idea embodied in people with uniforms or guns or badges, like the man, you know, this repressive force and how people were trying to find creative side alleys, back streets, barren deserts, forest, uh, abandoned apartments to act out their freedom. Mm. So they would find places that hadn't been commercialized, commodified or gentrified um, to, you know, kind of unzip their social mask and let the unicorn power, power out. <laughs> and so I, I kind of grew up with a worldview that was, I guess, implicitly Freudian, um, but socialized in, in the sense that there's desires that we have, instincts that we have that are often deeply repressed and unnecessarily so. And that there was constant 
colorful eruptions in everyday life. Sometimes eruptions coming out of our eyes, the way that we imagine and fantasize. Uh, sometimes eruptions coming out of our mouths, the way that we make jokes um, uh, and tease and flirt and, and imagine. Uh, sometimes eruptions would come out of our bodies, the way that we danced and that we move. And so I always saw the world as this contest between the repressive force and the, the eruption of the colorful and the playful in coming out of our bodies in everyday life. Yeah. And what's that showing up like now in your work in the world and what you're mm. doing at SUNY and beyond? And I try to make the classroom a place of play. So recently we did uh, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. And so I told him, come on in, but wear gloves and bring something that could start a fire. <laughs> and I was like, we're not actually going to burn the building down. This is not like the Pink Floyd movie, The Wall. Um, so they came in and um, they wrote their dreams on paper. Then we taped the paper on the walls. We turned down the lights and we lit candles and we let them go through their own Plato's cave. And they got to see everyone else's dream images. And so by going back and forth with this flickering candlelight on these strange but somehow familiar images, it made them feel like they were inside of a dream. And then we tore it down, threw it away, turned on the lights, and it was like waking up. Hmm. And so it was a very kind of stark emotional journey from beginning, middle, and end. So I try to bring play into the classroom. And then for writing, I try to find the thing that I'm either scared to say hmm. or things that are so pleasurable that I want to keep them to myself. <laughs> and I put that on the page. Hmm. And I usually find that when that dam bursts, everything else flows pretty freely. Yeah. Curious what helps you get to that place to open up the dam or to... Finding where I'm repressing myself and, and also acknowledging that some forms of self-repression are also forms of consideration and grace towards others or maturity so that not all forms of self-repression are innately hostile or bad. Um, they don't all hobble you. Some are just, you know, just learning how to deal with others and balancing what you need and others need. But when, I'm, when I have the, the pen in my hand and it's hovering over the page, I sometimes imagine that the pen is a drill and that it's going to drill into a vein of the unconscious. And then mm. when it goes, the unconscious kind of comes out through the pen and it spills over the page. And then later on, you do the work of shaping it and forming it into a poem or to an essay, uh, into a vignette. Um, into a confession, into uh, a prophecy, whatever form it is. But you got to get that kind of initial, you know, blood out, you mm -hmm. know, let it, you know, let it come out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stream flow. I love that. Yeah. It's a beautiful yeah. image. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm, thank I know. you. I know. So happy to be here together. <laughs> yeah. So our topic tonight yeah. psychedelics and social justice I know. like why 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 should why even have this conversation what's so important about this yeah um probably many in this room at least i know i have is i've noticed that since the the psychedelic renaissance or the acceptance increasingly of psychedelics as a medical tool that it's brought psychedelics in a certain sense out of the counterculture mm -hmm. and further step by step into the mainstream and oddly enough, it's a kind of generational project. So Michael Pollan's book, um, How to Change Your change Mind, your mind 
Um, he actually, I think, talked about how it was the aging baby boomers who were dealing with the kind of inevitable difficulties of aging are at some, sometimes turning towards psychedelics again, but for a different reason. And so it opens up a very justifiable way for people to talk about psychedelics within a medical framework. And, and so then it raises up so many other questions such as, well, if psychedelics are going to be used as a form of medical practice, then what other traumas, what other ailments, both personal and political, the self and the social, um, can they be applied to? So those are just some questions. Um, but then the other question is, if it's not just psychedelics in and of themselves, it's not just a sparkle in the brain when the chemicals reconnect and reignite the neurons, but it's the culture around it, it's the ceremony around it, then the question is, is, are the chemicals that important or is it the culture around the chemicals that allow them to do their kind of psychological alchemy in which you know, the soul's kind of emerging like a butterfly from a cocoon? And I think that that's maybe the unspoken tension because the counterculture has tried to create a ceremony space where the psychedelics can help you transform. And the further they go out of that countercultural space, um, will they have that transformative impact or is it going to become very personal, very commodified, very individualistic? So I think those are some of the questions that are floating around. And I won't pretend to have any answers, but... I think those are some of the questions. Brings up a couple things for me. Um, one is that, you know, there's a lot of value to just being with the question. And in fact, this year um, on the playa, somebody said that they saw a wonderful little book called Your Answers Questioned. Mm. <laughs> so, okay, let's keep up with that. But um, I think this is, you know, we're you're touching on a really important part of what's happening in the landscape of the psychedelic renaissance, if you will, around the, the potential for commodification. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could just speak to that, what, 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 we're, what you feel like we're observing and what we might want to look out for um, well, I guess with that the, force in action. Imagine walking into a CVS and one of the things that you can buy in a package is psilocybin or a copy of it that has similar effects or MDMA or something that has similar effects. And how would you feel? How would you feel knowing that you can go into a Walgreens and buy psychedelics? And, or if maybe that's too an extreme of a vision, maybe it won't be something over the counter, something that needs to be prescribed or taken within a medical um, you know, office or center. What does that do for the bulk of psychedelic use, which is not medical? It's at carnivals. It's in one's private life. It's a, a trip that one may take out to a forest or a beach or go camping or with friends. I think the reality is the bulk of psychedelics are done outside of a medical context. So the, I guess the question is, does that then become destigmatized? Will that also be legalized? Or is legalization and normalization only going to be for the medical context? So... And that's the question you're going to have to, I think, grapple with as you think about psychedelics at Walgreens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, I mean, I think just for the purpose of clarification for the audience, I think that what we're actually looking at as um, specifically MDMA and psilocybin are moving through the um, the phase two and phase three clinical trials is actually a potential rescheduling. So that's different than a legalization and definitely different than a um, the decriminalization movements, for example, are also not legalization movements. Um, but we're looking at moving these, what I refer to as sacred technologies, out of a inaccessible, um, you know, bind behind a lock and key and into a place where they could have some more accessibility, mm-hmm. which is another topic we can definitely grapple with tonight. Um, but again, yeah, what, what will be the binds of staying within that model of the medical model? Yeah. And then also... So the one question is uh, accessibility, but the other side is cultural resistance. And in the research that I have done, and then also in the personal experience, psychedelics within the black American tradition and drugs in general have been seen as tools of white supremacy to destroy the people, Mm. right? And so Malcolm X said that, Asada Shakur said that, Public Enemy said uh, the blunt is what's behind for the black behind. You know what I mean? Just like, mm. just you know, like the constant suspicion of drugs as a means of holding the people back. And then also in my own personal life, I remember again walking with my mom, and she would tell me stories of how people who were in the movement one day were clear-eyed, fiery activists, and then the next day were walking around glazed-eyed in their own escaped world. Hmm. And she said that they let the drugs in the street to destroy the movement. And um, whether or not that's true or whether it was just letting the drugs in to make money and that was a side effect that it destroyed the movement, in the end, that's what happened. So there is on the other side of accessibility, uh, a deep suspicion within at least black America and to a certain sense, um, Latin America is obviously very diverse. You have Puerto Ricans, Venezuelans, Dominicans, Mexicans, you know, but within communities of color that have dealt with American racism, there's a fear and a, a, um, a suspicion that also comes from the hyper-criminalization of people of color from the drug war. So you have different forms of resistance against this that would really have to be targeted and understood and worked with and massaged if psychedelics was going to be an option for these communities to use as part of a medical treatment, to be able to trust establishments, uh, to be able to have places where one could be vulnerable and let their mind detach, feel grief, uh, feel anger, feel all those feelings, and then be able to integrate them into their totality of their life story and then I think the final point is not, so you have accessibility, then you have cultural resistance, and then you have the after effect. If you take psychedelics to integrate trauma back into your body and kind of um, bring all the shadow wounds into your life so you can kind of be a complete person again and not be driven into cycles of behavior by pain. What happens if you wake up the next day in Section 8 housing? You're still there. Or on a Native American reservation, you're still there. Or if you're white and poor and you're waking up in a trailer home or in the sticks in Washington State and you're still there. Like, what if poverty and or race and or sexual orientation and or gender, like, what if you're still waking up 
in places that cause you a great amount of pain. And so I think that there's a limit to the personal as what can be healed and then you're fine when you're still confronted with the social that's causing so much damage. And I think that's why mm. I think the counterculture has so many urgent lessons for the larger culture that the risk, I think, is that those lessons will be left behind on the rush to get psilocybin, MDMA, you know, in the hands of the doctors. Um, how do you treat a society? How do you treat a culture, right? Um, and what are the things that, we, that are ailing us as a culture? Materialism, the planet is choking with garbage and carbon. The skies are choking with carbon. The seas are choking with plastic. Um, militarism, there's wars that are erupting and streams of blood flowing over borders. Uh, we just heard what's happening with Syria and the Kurds and the, and the Turkish army. Um, there's so many forms of violence that are happening in the world. And in that context, personal healing isn't enough. There has to be a greater social healing. Mm -hmm. right. Oof. It's like a breath there for a moment. Sorry, that was <laughs> That was great. It's <laughs> really great. Um, I'm curious just, you know, what, what do you offer for some guideposts, if you will, to move towards building these types of bridges, especially amongst marginalized communities where that level of mistrust, if you will, is so ingrained and such a barrier to potentially opening up to maybe the healing potential of working with these types of tools. One thing is to be aware that marginalized communities actually already have transcendent traditions of healing. They may not actually involve, sometimes they do, but they may not actually involve drugs or psychedelics. Um, and one example is uh, I'm a co-parent and um, my, the, the co-parent, she is working on a documentary. And the documentary is about the house scene in Newark, New Jersey. And it's amazing that this scene has gone back 30 to 40 years. And so she invited me there. And so we're there playing with our son. And he's, you know, bobbing his head to the house music. He loves it. And um, he always gets a little bit too close to the speakers. And you can just see his skin, like, <laughs> being blown back by the sound waves. And I'm just always waiting one day for the speaker to short circuit. And it just booms out this huge sonic blast. And my son is just sailing in the air. Um, but when she's she's a really good reporter and she interviews people very carefully and meticulously and so she told me the pattern was a lot of the people at the newark house music scene 30 or 40 years been going strong are former addicts and they go to the house music scene because there's no drugs there and there's no alcohol very few people are smoking joints or or anything and the strongest thing that people take is coffee and hot dogs. And so people are in recovery. And so they get an endorphin rush from the house music. And people are high from the dancing. You can see it. They have just this blissful face and they're just spinning and dancing and they get the endorphins up and they bless the stage before the dancers and the, and the DJ blesses the equipment before she or he DJs. And what I've noticed is that many communities that are oppressed have transcendent traditions where they find their way to a psychedelic space, but not necessarily through the chemicals. Because the chemicals can happen naturally in the brain with dance. They can have naturally in the brain through sport. 
They can have they can happen naturally in the brain through friendship, talking, intimacy, laughter. There's so many ways that the same high that you get from psychedelics, or almost a similar high, can happen organically. And so, what I was realizing is that there are so many of these transcendent communities that heal trauma through this transcendence into this kind of psychedelic space. But the doors that you can get there are many. And what's happening is that there's a segregation between these different communities. There's no bridges between them. So you have Burning Man in the desert, which is kind of the crown jewel of the counterculture. But there's not really a lot of connection between that, say, in the Newark house scene or maybe the house music scene in Oakland, in the Bay Area. I mean, all of these different communities have ways of reaching that, Mm -hmm. but they don't have ways of reaching each other. And I think that if that coalition of the transcendent could actually be established, then you would have people leaving the silo, leaving the privatized space of, say, the church or the house music scene or the gay pride march or Burning Man and start to party in public together. And when they did that, then a new social trust would be formed and people would find that they were glued to each other by their sweat, by their smiles. They would be united. And a lot of these kind of smaller level politics that we see getting played out would shrink and kind of disappear because we're building a new kind of constitution in the street. We're writing a new constitution with our bodies in the street. Um, But you have to connect those communities instead of all of them like paying high ticket prices to go out to a private event. Like it has to be in the street, has to be accessible to poor people, and it has to bring people in um, who don't normally meet. Mm-hmm. I love this notion of the coalition of the transcendent. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we should we should keep working with that one. I'll, tell, I'll get a tattoo to yeah, okay. like right here, <laughs> mm-hmm. so people don't ever forget. Don't ever forget it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a really important point. Is you know how do these communities connect and then find the common ground like that? You know, the smiles and the sweat that sticks them together and then invites an opening invites an inquiry, a curiosity around, well, how do you, what is your doorway into your transcendent experience? And then maybe I want to dance fast, meditate, try a psychedelic substance, go out to the desert, make love, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that that part of the counterculture is everywhere, but within the United States, it is the dynamic part of the culture that actually makes oftentimes Americans out of immigrants. I mean, in New York, which is the the classic place for immigrants to come to, and many of my students are first generation, um, South Asian, Desi, um, African, Nigerian, West African mostly, uh, Latino, Dominican, uh, Puerto Rican mostly, Mexican too. So we have like this huge able-bodied, disabled, uh, gay and straight. So we have this kind of big like Noah's Ark Mm. of students there. And what I've noticed is that it is the dancing, it is the body humor, um, the politically incorrect humor done with trust. It is the creativity that binds people together because they know they can let their old selves go. So it's actually the counterculture values of America, which are the dynamic part of the nation that actually bring people in and allow them to recreate themselves. And yet that's also the very part of the culture that's most repressed by conservatives who are constantly saying, these immigrants need to either be American or get out. I'm like, well, 
the very part of the culture that you are constantly repressing, passing laws against, trying to uh, stigmatize and demonize, that's the part of the culture that actually creates new Americans. Um, and then the culture, culture worldwide is what creates new people. It allows them to unzip, allows them to come out of their kind of old cocoons, their old religions and create something new. It's always going to happen. I guess the, the difference is, does it happen quickly, quickly or does it happen glacially? It's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> mm, something that feels important to um, name as we're coursing through this conversation this evening is, is just this notion around cultural appropriation, too. Mm -hmm. One is um, going to explore something from another tradition. How do we be mindful of that? Oh, there was a, I met, uh, two or three burns ago. I was, in the, I was on the playa. Um, and you just saw the silhouettes of people walking around and then an art car would come by, fire would shoot out and you see people's faces and then it would pass. And I went into this one art exhibit and it was a like LED spinning. And I saw this one man, uh, Latino, but he was wearing a Native American headdress. And of course my, my instant gut reaction was like, oh man, don't be a douche. Like, why are you wearing that? But I was like, uh. I'm not, I'm not going to be the PC police tonight. I just wanted to relax. Um, but then I thought about Burning Man in general. And I think that this happens in the American counterculture in general, is that the crisis and the political debate have happening over symbols like, say, the Native American headdress or um, South Asian symbols, everything from the saris, to yoga, uh, to people wearing the bindi, um, to African-American symbols like braids, et cetera, that there's a fighting over those symbols and who gets to wear them and who, and who doesn't. The reason those symbols become emotionally charged is because there's a displaced guilt, because the symbols of a people are there, but not the people themselves. So I see an art car passing by and it's got James Brown and you know, the Pointer Sisters and, you know, just really classic black music from like Motown to Trap. But there's not many black people at Burning Man. You see a Native American headdress, there's not many indigenous people there, even though we actually pass through like Route 107 um, through a reservation to get there and et cetera, et cetera. And so those symbols become highly charged, but the, the wall that that conversation hits is that, you can fight over who gets to wear them or not, but I think sometimes that might be a displaced fight because what really we want is the people who those symbols represent to be there. It's not the symbols themselves. It's that they're the symbols of an absence. Mm. And, we're, and so if you're fighting over an absence, you can't really win. So what you need to do is actually fill that absence with the presence of people. And again, that's why... I think the most conservative part of the American counterculture is that it's privatized and it's walled off. It's walled off by distance, it's walled off by prices, it's walled off by so many different types of privilege. And that's why I think reaching out and actually making the street into a playa mm. is then you will realize that those symbols that we were fighting for mean very, very little when you actually have the real people themselves there. And then you find that the people themselves have a very complex relationship to those symbols. So there's going to be Native Americans who look at the headdress and 
don't really feel that much about it or maybe use it to make fun of, just like the way Catholics use um, the Pope's hat to make fun of as well. Or the way that black folks will make fun of, you know, how many musicians have we made fun of from R. Kelly to, you know, Flavor Flav. You know what I mean? I'm just saying it's like people have complex relations to the symbols. And you realize that, that are using those symbols for displaced guilt, maybe because of this struggle we're having with absence, but it doesn't actually reflect the way the culture sees, excuse me, sees those symbols. Because people are complex. They're always more complex than the symbols that they use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so continuing on with Burning Man, could you say a little yeah. bit about your oh. experiment in forming the POC camp and just, yeah. yeah, maybe a little bit about your first burn and what that impact was for you? Uh, I jumped, so we, we drove into, um, past the, the, the greater station, and you just saw the dust, and I popped out of the car, I got naked, I made a dust angel, <laughs> and then... I hit the bell with my ass and somehow it rang. Um, <laughs> no, my ass is not that pointy. But you know what I mean? Like, I definitely... <laughs> you did the thing. I did the thing. Yeah. Um, so I got baptized by the dust. And um, I w- was blown away and immersed into a reality that I thought was only possible in dreams. Mm. And when I left Burning Man, I realized that the world that I thought was only possible in either the afterlife, and I don't, and I'm atheist, I don't believe in the afterlife, but only possible in dreams. It was actually real, it was happening every year. So I had, I could let go of faith that human beings could create a lot, uh, a much better society, and I had knowledge. I was like, oh, we actually do it. And going from faith to knowledge, having the ephemeral made concrete, even if it only lasted seven days, was incredibly healing because it gave me faith that human beings can actually create a much better world under the right conditions. So Burning Man did that for me. And also, and so forgive me for this, I mean, if you're really, if anyone here is really invested in white guilt, I'm sorry, this is going to rub you the wrong way. But so when I went there, I realized that, that um, and this is not, I don't think, a, a CNN headline, um, that the level of racism, obviously explicit to even microaggressions, was dramatically decreased. Like, I just didn't feel a lot of racial surveillance. I didn't feel the heaviness of race there. And I think when so many mostly white people left capitalism, left the nine to five, left their own class anxiety and security, their own like constantly monitoring their bank accounts and dealing with children and elderly, like when they left so much and they just got there, in their freedom, so much of the implicit racism left as well. And so it's like the whiteness was turned down and the weirdness was turned up. (laughs) So they went from being like white Americans to just weird Americans and then just weirdos. And it was beautiful, it's a beautiful transformation. And so the, the racism there is dramatically lowered. And I could, I walked into this one workshop, and it was a people of color workshop. This is way, way, way before the POC camp. And they asked, well, how does it feel to be a POC at Burning Man? And back then I had like these long dreads, you know, like these, like, they almost looked like, you know, remember the Matrix with those like squiggly little things? That's what I look like, you know? Um, so I had like these really, really long dreads. And so I was like walking around, was, like all militant. And I remember when the 
the guide asked that question. She said, what does it feel like to be a POC at Burning Man? And I felt this great sadness welling up in my body and in my throat constricted and my eyes burned. And it was because I realized I felt so much freer at Burning Man than I did outside. And I realized outside in the default world, there was this heaviness that I was living under and I had gotten so used to it that it was like those fish at the bottom of the ocean with the hard calcified armor and their small little blinky lights. Yeah, and like, you know, Spanish galleons and like Russian subs and like whales and like all the stuff that's, you know, there. <laughs> Waldo. That, Waldo's definitely there, yeah. That, um, and I realized that one, the essentialist and I think too easy and forgive me for being a little bit rough, I think the lazy accusation that whiteness and blackness and ness, ness, ness is all essential and permanent is actually false. It's very fluid. Um, race is a construction, didn't always exist and it won't always exist. And at Burning Man, I actually felt it close to not existing. So when I was there, I felt the sadness. I was like, wow, this is what it's like to live without that weight. And I realized I wanted to start a POC camp because I wanted other people of color to be able to come to a space. And if they had to have that feeling, they could have that feeling. So I started it. Um, and the first year it was a hot mess. <laughs> it was like, I think the Borg, you know how it is. If you ever like look at the yoga magazines, you know how like they have like the one black person like in every single photo, right? You know, and so I think the Borg, God bless them, but they put me on Rod's road way before I was ready. And I was just like, thanks guys, but I don't know if this is gonna happen. So I was like putting up like rebar and like putting up the thing and I threw a parachute over it thinking that that was smart. I wish someone had been like, no, because the high winds came and the parachute started to blow away and it was expensive. So I was like, no, I'm not gonna let this blow away. So then I grabbed it and then I started wind sailing and, <laughs> and luckily the wind stopped or I would have been a headline. And so that didn't work, but then I threw some other like uh, camouflage netting that the wind can go through. And so I sat down and it was basically four, you know, bars, whatever, camouflage netting and a couple of, excuse me, a couple of chairs. It was raggedy. <laughs> and then, so I sat there and I just waited. It was like the field of dreams. Like if you build it, they will come. come. And um at first, a crew of people of color came and they're like, is this the POC camp? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I had a cantaloupe and like, you know, soda. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, no. And they just, they had pride and they just kept going. <laughs> I don't blame them. And then, and then a dust storm came. And then out of this dust storm, this uh, very dark skinned Desi, South Asian young man came up. And he sat down and he's like, this is the POC camp? I was like, yeah, talk to me. You know, how are you feeling? This is, this is your space, man. He said, can I just tell you something? I was like, tell me, I'm Dr. Phil. Um, and he said it was very hard for him sometimes to be a Burning Man because he'd grown up, he had grown up in the Midwest and his parents had told him, don't talk with the Indian accent, don't tell anyone about Hinduism and blend in to the majority white culture as much as possible. And he did, he succeeded. He was really, really good. But he said, man, it's really, really hard to come here and see the very people who I was supposed to blend into using the very symbols and religion that I was told to let go of. Mm. And then his body went, and he just let something out. And then he got up and he kind of 
motioned towards me and he gave me a hug and I could tell that he was squeezing out the last of it. And then, you know, I just gave him a kiss on the forehead like a dad and I said, you know, and then he disappeared. I never, I don't know his name, I don't know where he is, but I knew that he left some of that weight on the ground that day. So that's what the POC camp was meant for. And then it's grown. So like it's grown for me there holding a cantaloupe under some, you know, raggedy ass <laughs> camouflage. So like 30 people and I just got like a shower. All cooks, right. Um, real shade structure. Um, and people go there and they go there to deal with race in a lot of different ways. Mm. Some people don't have that, you know, sadness. They're not like all W Du Bois about it. And other people um, go there just to enjoy having inside jokes that wouldn't happen elsewhere. Um, so people come there for a lot of different reasons, and that's the goal. Like, it's not just my trip, and it's not even my camp anymore. Now it's it's everyone's camp. Uh, so now it's kind of grown up and it's doing its own thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there it is, the POC camp at Burning Man, right? Beautiful. Yeah. For that gift to the community. I think it's important to highlight that, um, you know, Burning Man is one of the spaces, not only, but one of the spaces where these isms can fall aside and that there is a, a degree of um, invitation towards perhaps a never-felt-before freedom in that. Mm -hmm. You know, when gender and the color of one's skin or eyes or what one is wearing, when, that, when the attachment to that just falls away, you know, and the pure essence of the human spirit comes forth, people ask me, why do you, like, why do you still go? I just celebrated my 18th consecutive year on the playa. And many of the past years, I'm thinking, am I totally crazy? Yes, I'm totally crazy. Okay, I'm going again. Why am I going to this thing? And then I get there. I'm like, why am I here? And then I love it. I love it. And it's partly because the I come into contact with the human spirit and it's some of its purest, most raw essence. It's not the only place, but it is, it is a place out of time that invites this forth. And once... For, at least for me, when I start contacting it and I look around, it's contagious. Mm -hmm. It's a contagious feeling to be in a celebratory space of generosity and see past those isms and just be open to receive, to explore, to fall apart, to come back together again. I mean, the playa is quite a place to just bring it all right up real fast. And I think that's, that there's such a correlation, too, between what can be available in the psychedelic space. You know, this is a place, too, where all these egoic constructs can really fall aside if we are open to that. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, the place that I have experienced that psychedelic openness outside of um, the playa consistently mm -hmm. has been actually in the activist protest tradition. And Occupy Wall Street mm -hmm. felt very, very much like the playa. And I remember, uh, so I mean, I'm in New York and... You know, I slept out there for quite a couple of days and was out there. And I met my friend Danny, and he also is a burner. And he's with uh, the Stop Shopping Choir with Reverend Billy. And so, and I see him on stage singing. He's got a great, great voice. And we were sitting there in the middle of Occupy, and everyone's there and waking up in the morning out in the middle of the street. I was like, doesn't this feel like like the playa? He's like, yeah, it really does, you know? Um, and oddly enough, that's what my mom said that the 60s and 70s were like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because I asked her, I was like, what the hell was going on? And she's like, well, a lot. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but like, she's like, well, of course there was the activism, but more than that, every city you went to in the 60s, the scene was there. Mm -hmm. 
you could crash someplace, you know, find a sofa, someone would give you food. You would do the same if they came to your city. Um, of course, it was music and sex and drugs, and rock and roll and everything. And she said it was a big party. The activism was an incredible stream, but it was one stream within a larger party. Mm -hmm. And so the, the politicized hedonism and the pleasure and the joy was itself a political force. And so, and I think also she was saying that the amount of social trust increased also because the barriers that it took for people to give and receive it lowered. So instead of having to wear a suit and tie and or dress and go to a job and say, I earn enough money to show that I'm a disciplined, productive member of society and, I, and I've earned my love. You could just wear sandals and sleep out in the park. And you deserved food, you deserved safety, you deserved love just because. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to earn it. You didn't have to slave away at a nine to five. You didn't have to support the war machine. You didn't even have to support the country. You just had to be a human being. Mm -hmm. You deserved it. You deserved food, shelter, and love. And because it decreed, it lowered the barriers, the kind of the tariffs, um, the toll booths that it takes that people have to pay for trust it then increased dramatically. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was that contagious joy that people will think about when they remember those days or Occupy Wall Street mm -hmm. or to a certain extent, Black Lives Matters. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's what we need. That's like our special power for those of us who are on the left or are progressives or the counterculture, the, the kind of coalition of the transcendent. Our special power is how do we increase social trust and lower the barriers so that more people can come in? Mm -hmm. knowing that it's contagious because we can't beat the right with guns you know and i know and i know marxists like in new york marxism is a pretty kind of valid tradition and so people follow it and there is a, a line of lo logic in marx marxist that say we have to take over the state with a violent revolution and so there is that mode of analysis but in real practice the left is not looked towards weapons to defeat the state or the right. We do it with the contagiousness of love. Mm -hmm. So in other words, instead mm -hmm. of using weapons, we make weapons obsolete. Instead of picking up the gun, we make it, why bother picking it up in the first place? We, we try to create a world where guns aren't needed. Mm -hmm. And I think that that seems to be um, our tactics and our strategy. Yeah, important strategy for us to invite ourselves into. and. What do you think are some tools that we can kind of harness in our day-to-day -day experience to help us come into contact with that more mm. as we get, you know, assaulted with what's going on in the world? I mean, walk down the street here in San Francisco, especially in this neighborhood, it is so intense. Yeah. The uh, degree of disparity is so ever-present. Um, not everyone has necessarily all of their basic needs met to even be able to be in this type of conversation. Yeah. So how do we sharpen our own tools and skills for resilience to be models of this? So I think one of the things that, that I do, and I don't pretend to do this as consistently as I want, um, but something's changing inside of me, I think, because of the, the birth of my son. But mm -hmm. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Um, I will give food and time for a conversation if it's safe 
with people who are homeless or poor or destitute. And not because I'm trying to invite them in my life. I'm not an idiot. But like because I want to create a human connection and touch. All right? It doesn't mean that you're going to crash in my bed. But it does mean that I need to see you as a human being. And I need to force myself out of looking at people like price tags every single day. And so I just go up as kindness. Like, you deserve some food today. And here it is. Um, we can just talk for a minute before I got to catch a bus. And I try to do these rituals of seeing past a capitalist hallucination and puncture through that with acts of generosity and kindness because that heals me as much as it helps them a little bit through the day. Now, I'm not saying that's systemic change, but what it does is it keeps in life inside of me a consciousness that the world that I want to see, um, has. To, I, I need to create it a little mm -hmm. bit every day. I also turn off my cell phone for long stretches of time because the cell phone is like the new crack crack pipe. Mm -hmm. and, and what I've noticed is that the capitalist form of, of totalitarian control is before, like, you know, I'm an 80s kid, the <laughs> TV was over there. You had to go to the TV and wrestle with the antenna to try to get like, you know, like a frequency it was weird. You know, like electricity with movies was flying through the sky and you had to like angle it. And then <laughs> with... With every new wave of technology, the screen, which was over there, and I had to go to it, and like the, the, the turner would fall off, and you had to get pliers. Like it just got closer. <laughs> so then, like, I was in cable, you know, now it was consistent, right? And then it got closer, now it's in our cell phones, and it's like everywhere. So it's like the screens are pouring into our brains through our eyes and our ears, are pouring into our minds this ideology, this false world. The, the jewels, the bling, the people with washboard abs, the people who are, are stretched by computers to make them look like Barbie dolls when no human being can look like that. Like they're pouring into our brains this false world. And it controls us almost totally. So I try to shut it off because like, oh, this they're just trying to control my head. Mm -hmm. So I shut off the cell phone and I stay away from the screens. Mm -hmm. And I go towards faces like a moth to a flame. Mm -hmm. Go towards the faces. That's where reality is at. And... Lastly, I try to get involved in uh, local politics and because I find that the national politics are important to follow, but it's easy to have like a, a virtual life where you're projecting yourself on the faces of these kind of faraway gladiators fighting it out in suits and dresses on the TV and debates, whereas there's literally people right there on my street who I could talk to and connect with. So um, those are the three things, shut off the screen, Every single day, do an act of anti-capitalist kindness, um, something that circumvents money, and also try to get involved locally because also it's more empowering. If you get involved locally, you can actually see things that you do change, and it becomes addictive to see your empowerment. I can actually change my local world. Um, and that, I could feel something changing inside of me because uh, my son is 18 months old, and I keep falling more and more in love with him. And it sounds Disney, but like it's a little scary. <laughs> because I'm like, man, how much can I fucking love this kid? Um, and, and it's a lot because it feels like my heart is like bursting a little bit every time I see him. It's like, this is a lot. And I was like, is it like a parental plateau? Like, doesn't it like chill <laughs> at some point? And... <laughs> I remember it really began when we went to the ultrasound and I heard his heartbeat for the first time. And it sounds like a hummingbird. And when I came out, 
I was just, I, could, I kept hearing his heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, we were out of the office and the jelly had been cleaned off of her belly, I kept hearing the heartbeat in my head. And I looked and I saw all the people in New York and Manhattan. And I, I, I imagined they had heartbeats like his. And everyone's heartbeat started like that. And everyone started like he did. And I just looked mm-hmm. at everyone in the streets as if each human being had poured out of a woman's body from nothingness into life. And like a river of life, they flowed into the city. They flowed into languages. They flowed into roles. They flowed into masks. But this river of life was flowing from bodies out into the world and then becoming their own bodies. And all of them were connected by this heartbeat. And I could feel it pulsing underneath everything. And that's when I felt something changed inside of me. And it was deeper than any holy book or deeper than any ideology. It was just in my body. I could feel it. And I was like, oh, we're all very, very deeply connected. We're all very, very much the same. And yet our lives have taken us into these different corners, different addresses, different places. But underneath it is still this beating, constantly beating, constantly beating. So that's it's changing. And I don't know what it's changing me into, but I could just feel it every time I hold him and as he's growing. And I, I've become dangerously bored with capitalism. <laughs> I feel like, you know, it's, it's not really offering a world that connects to that heartbeat. And so when I go to the counterculture, I feel this is the only culture that I feel is actually connected to that heartbeat because it's a culture where things connect, where they grow. And I'm like, oh, that's where it's really at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I feel you on that for sure. Hmm. I'm going to do something a little risky here. I'm just going to invite us each to maybe just put a hand on your heart if that feels right for a moment. Like, just connect to that heartbeat. You know, we each have that. And at one point in time, we were just a little star seed coming into form and planting ourselves precisely within our parents' desire, as poet laureate Joy Harjo says in one of her poems. You know, and then the rhythm came forth, and now you get to sing your own fantastic song. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. So, where to from here? What kind of world would you like to see for your son? If we can do our best to be instruments of change and embody these values such that the children can live into a future that is brighter than at least what I. I'm in contact with right now. What can we do? What would you like to see available for true, especially in this lens of social justice? I want to start creating the world that I want him to live in. So I'm protesting more, sometimes by myself, like I protested in front of Trump Tower, Mm -hmm. you know, just a sign. Um, I'm gonna go that in front of Wall Street as well, but then protest with others, Extinction Rebellion, Sunrise Movement. So protest more, but then also reach out to friends who I love and love me. And I want him to grow up around love as much as possible. I also am going to 
work very hard to withhold any anxiety about him keeping up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm. As he goes into the education, I want him to love learning and I need to find out whoever and wherever learn learning is loved for him to be there and not to be pressured into thinking that a high price tag means quality. I want him to know the wildness of people who are free. So I want him to take him to the free places, the parties, the festivals, the gathering, the witching hours, all of that, all the warlocks, everything. I want him to fall in love with the earth. And I want him to fall in love with his body and through that to love other people. And I want him to be comfortable in telling me and other people his truth. But in a way that's mature and graceful and acknowledging that it's his truth, it's not everyone's truth, and don't be an asshole about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I want him to grow up with the common sense that everyone has a shadow side and he's going to have his own shadow side. And that's going to be with him for the rest of his life. And that it's not something to run away from, but it's actually his greatest teacher. And to talk with other people about it and be honest. And honesty is what kills the fear that makes our shadows into our masters. So I think that that's what I want for him. Will you maybe talk with him about psychedelics? Oh, I think from... Uh, Besides I, just going to the festivals. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to like, you know, like dose him at six years old. Here you go, kid. Here's some sugar. Um, I, from a very early age, uh, I wanted, there's one value that I really like in New York. Um, and that's because New York is such a competitive, shitty city. Um, I was born in New York. And so, you know, it's born in me. Um, and so I have mixed feelings about that place. You know, I love it. I was baptized by it, but it's a shitty fucking city. Um, but because a lot of people there hustle, because it's like the Mount Vesuvius of capitalism, there's a lot of hustling that happens there. And because of that, people are always, the common sense in New York is don't get hustled. Don't get hustled. Look behind you when you're walking on the street. You know, if you see a bunch of people and they're looking a little iffy, don't panic and walk fast. Walk slow and look them in the eye. Um, and if someone tries to sell you something, just don't buy it. <laughs> the, the harder they try to sell you something, the worse it is. <laughs> and so to translate that into psychedelics, I'll, I'll, I'm going to very early say, look, there's a great hypocrisy about drugs. I'm drinking coffee right now. Coffee's a drug. You're going to see people smoking cigarettes. That's a drug. They're legal. There's these other drugs that don't do that much more or different, and they're illegal. And then I'm going to sit and teach him the effect that every drug has. So when those kids at school say, oh, I, I got this at home. You want to try some? He's like, I already know what that does. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for the hangover from it? <laughs> so I want him to be incredibly knowledgeable. So whenever he chooses, I would prefer for him to do psychedelics after 18 after he's like matured and is able to deal with such a hard trip. Different cultures have different um, times in their life when they or times for children to try psychedelics. So I'm aware of that. But in our culture, uh, like all right, after 18, I don't pretend that I would be able to control him, but at least I can teach him. And I think if I teach him honestly, he can make a good decision on his own, whatever the decision that is. 
but I don't want him to get hustled by peer pressure into doing something that seems like it's cool, but really it's foolishness. So I'd rather teach him the honest facts first and then let him make the decisions about his drug use and then always say, you can talk to me. And I'll be honest with him. I was like, if he does drugs in an irresponsible way, I was like, yeah, I'm going to judge you. You're, that's being an idiot. But it doesn't mean I don't love you. Mm -hmm. I love you. And guess what? When your dad was your age, I was an idiot too. <laughs> welcome to the family. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the family. Hmm. One of the things that I think a lot about when it comes to psychedelics, you know, we have this interesting and I think kind of fascinating and amazing opportunity right now to be looking at some of the biological correlates for the phenomenological experience, right? Mm. We have these fMRI studies and all these scans of what's happening in the brain and we're seeing blood flows here or not there. It's away from the default mode network and all these fun neuroscientific terms for why these experiences might be helping to shape the neurochemistry and help us to essentially build new neurons. I find all of that very fascinating. And on the other hand, it doesn't directly translate. And something I think a lot about around how these, again, what I call sacred technology, and there are many technologies of the sacred. So whether that's fasting, drumming, dancing, house music, whatnot. One of the things I think a lot about is how the common thread that I see is that they help us to come into contact with humility mm -hmm. and vulnerability. And when we are in contact with our vulnerability, it helps to deep. It helps to deepen our intimacy with ourselves, mm -hmm. if if we want to avail ourselves to that, and by default with others, those around us, and the universe, the cosmos, and in that space of intimacy, it is, I think, supported to naturally develop and extend a space of empathy and compassion, mm -hmm. and to look out and see others as self and self as others, and oh. I, it naturally, I naturally want to extend compassion and care to my fellow person, to the plants, to the animals, to the ocean. And so, again, we have these kind of biological correlate things going on in the scientific world, very interesting. And then this is kind of my, my um, idea around what's happening on that phenomenological level. And I think that that is something that um, can unify us if we can come into more contact with vulnerable spaces and, and safe places and create safe spaces together, we can start to bridge um, some of these uh, illusions of divide between yeah. the isms, right? Race, gender, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. No, Close I totally to agree that. with you. I totally, I, yes. And that's the political utility of psychedelics that, um, when people are painted, oh, you're, you're this race, you know, you're this gender, you're this, you're this, you're that. Um, but the reality is that a lot of us live inside of each other. Our brains are mirrors. Our brains are hungry mirrors that take the reflections of other people deep inside of our own bodies. And I think one of the reasons social justice movements at their best work is they remind people who think they're very different that they actually carry the other person inside of them. And so at its best, the feminist movement reminds men, you have women inside of you. And it reminds women, you have men inside of you. Your fathers, your uncles, for men, your aunts, your sisters, your nieces, they were all intertwined. It reminds social justice, at their best, reminds quote unquote, 
and I use this because race is a social construction, quote unquote, white people or Latinos or Asians or black people, like you have actually the other people inside of you. In reality, you carry them inside of you all the time and you play with their culture and they play with your culture. And there's a constant flow, like a river going in between our mirrors. And I think our language sometimes is timid and is hesitant into stepping into the reality of that flow between the brain mirrors, between the body mirrors and how we all imitate bits and pieces of each other and use it to articulate things that we can't really speak about yet. And it's hazy and it's a little awkward and it's, sometimes it's exploitive and sometimes it's sincere but in bad taste and sometimes it's great and wonderful and triumphant, but it's all those things. But we're constantly flowing in between each other. And I think psychedelics exposes that invisible river that is tactile, we feel it, we flow on it, but it's not visible always in language. And so we don't always own it. And I think that's actually the real human reality. And psychedelics is one way of getting us there. And I think we need it because right now the country is thirsty and it's starving and it's a little bit like a desert where there's no party. Hmm. That there are, there are so many people who are literally in the streets starving because it's an emotional desert. And that's the thing is that we actually live in a world of incredible abundance. We have enough food, especially if we chill out with the fucking meat, chill out with the meat. We really don't need it. We have so much food. We have enough technology to create tons of housing. We don't even need oil anymore. Like we literally have the technology to suck up energy from the sun mm -hmm. and the wind and the, and the motions of the water. So we live in this world of abundance and yet there's people who are living in scarcity. So it's not the physical technological world that's in trouble, it's that we live in an emotional desert. And so I think that's why we need more of that flow to let us know we actually belong to each other. We always did and we always will. And that's the price of being a human being. We belong to each other. Beautiful, thank you so much. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>